Listener Production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Our next guest is Moo Bouch, who is the CEO at Domestic Violence New South Wales. She has been passionately engaged in social justice issues all her life, particularly those involving Indigenous Australians, the LGBTQI community and women. She is so engaged in giving a voice to those women, particularly um, a voice uh, to our governments. She was born in London, actually, um, and in fact, her family uh, went to Australia and she put a foot down and decided she'd stay in London right. and finish high, sc- <laughs> finish high school and do her first degree. But she did eventually end up coming over to Australia uh, and living in Brisbane where she got a master's from the University of Queensland and then went on to build up a- an incredible career. <laughs> Great to have you here, Moo. Thank you for having me. Now, you say somewhere, I've read it, that you are fortunate enough to be the child of two strong women. (laughs) Yeah. What do you mean? And it's not what people usually um, think. Uh, So I'm adopted. Um, I was born in London. I was actually conceived in Brisbane, I think, um, and born in London. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Made a a long trip in utero um, and my birth mother, Mary, um, travelled with two of her best friends who are two amazing um, women who I often joke and call my dads because they all shared a double bed in Catford in southeast London, which those of you who know Catford, it's not the most pleasant of places even today, but back in the early 70s, it was pretty nasty. And Mary and I, I guess, in utero, slept in the middle um, with, with one on either side. And then I was born in uh, Lewisham Hospital and adopted at the age of 10 days old, to um, my mum, whose name is Honey, and my English dad, who passed away a few years ago. So I grew up in the UK and spent, I guess, most of my formative time there until I was about 22, 23. And did you always know you were adopted? Yeah, always. I think I was really lucky. Um, I have a younger brother and sister who were not adopted, who were my mum and dad's biological kids, and they, um, I think they were a little bit jealous actually. Mm. I think th- I mm. think they felt as if I was a little bit special because I was the one that got chosen, um, whereas they were just, you know, accidents of fate. We'll talk obviously a bit more about um, some of the uh, background to your life and, and what formed you and so on, but tell me a little bit about how you came to be in this role of a CEO of Domestic Violence in New South Wales, because I'm sure there's, there's a story and a path that led you into that. Yeah, it's only with hindsight that you look back and you go, oh, okay, well, it all started back in kind of the mid-90s. Um, I moved over from the UK. I'd done my degree in English literature and language and a bit of history and a bit of sociology and some other stuff over there. And my entire family had moved from the UK when I was quite young, when I was quite a young teenager. And I've always been a bit stroppy. Like I've always had a little bit of attitude. Um, And so I was about 15, 16 when they moved over to Australia and I said, I'm not going. So I stayed. I stayed in England. And at the time I was lucky enough to have the tail end of being able to um, access what I guess would be the equivalent of like a grant to study. Um, first of all at college, so doing my uh, senior and then university as well. And of course, it'd be pretty hard to get that sort of support these days as a student, either here or in the UK. Um, but I managed to stay there, got through my got through my senior, I got through a degree and then I went 
hang on, all my family's living on the other side of the world. I should probably go and learn something about Australia. So I came over, uh, went to Brisbane, which is where they all were, enrolled in a master's at um, University of Queensland and met one of the people who's had most impact on my life, a, an amazing woman called Lisa Blair, who was also adopted. Um, and she was my tutor for one of my subjects because I was doing Australian studies, which I thought would be, you know, mm. a pretty sensible mm. thing. I, ha- I still have big gaps in terms of my knowledge and understanding around Australian culture particularly popular culture, just, you know, the programs that people grew up with, the things that people grow up with that as kids. That might be quite a good thing, Moo, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, <I> just, yeah. <laughs> sometimes I think Australian kids got the best of British uh, sitcoms and culture and the best of American. What we didn't get enough of when we were young was Australian stuff. Yeah, you know, we didn't. We got a lot of American stuff, yeah, didn't we? a lot. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I still have I still have big chunks of that stuff missing, but I um, I got to meet some pretty amazing people at University of Queensland at the time and did my master's there and sort of out the tail end of that was around the time that I met my birth mother. So um, in the UK, when you're 18, you can get all your paperwork, uh, you know, all of your files. And so... I remember going to, you know, a little office and sitting down with a social worker and she kind of handed over this file with, you know, lots of papers and letters and all sorts of stuff and, you know, talked through what was in there. And so I had a letter from from Mary, from my birth mother, um, in there and it was, you know, kind of signing off on some paperwork with the, the social worker back in London at the time. And I, and I thought, that's weird, there's an address on there. I'll just, this was the days before the internet. I went to the telephone directory, I looked up the surname uh, and I went, oh yeah, uh, there's somebody still there of that address. So um, this is a long roundabout way of telling the story, but I eventually on my 25th birthday plucked up the courage and I rang the telephone number and I said, oh, I'm looking for, um, you know, I'm looking for this woman. And she said, oh, that's my daughter. She just lives across the street. I'll get you the number. And so I had the very first conversation that I ever had with my birth mother, Mary, on my 25th birthday. Um, And then found out that she also was super connected into social justice and um, had been a teacher for many years and was on the board of an amazing organisation called Sisters Inside that works with incarcerated women up in Queensland and has lots of connections into uh, Aboriginal culture as well. So it all just, all these bits and pieces kind of started falling into place for me, which was weird because it's stuff that you don't expect to be biological at all in any sense. And then so I took on a job at the University of Queensland Student Union as, it was a great job title, Queer Sexuality Resource Organiser, I think it was. (laughs) So I always said I'd get paid to be a lesbian. (laughs) Um, And it was great. It was a it was a three day a week job, and it was supporting students um, in the you know through the through the student union there. Um, Not doing the kind of counselling stuff so much because there was a you know there was an area in the student association for that. But it happened to be around the time that Queensland was looking at reviewing their legislation in the domestic violence space, and so the first piece of legislation that we got recognition of same-sex relationships in Queensland was domestic violence legislation, bizarrely. Mm. Um, And so that's how I got into it. That's how I got into, you know, domestic violence and abuse in relationships and started working a bit with some of the women's organisations and advocates up there. So you sort of fell into it in a way. Very much fell into it. And, you know, my... I I always say I'm one of the luckiest people I know. Like, my, my life has been very much like that. I've had a series of quite incredible... Uh, jobs and experiences in all parts of the world just through complete serendipity. Yeah. So your personal experience 
um, of domestic violence and there's no reason that you should have it, but mm. you didn't have that. That wasn't something no, you'd ever, no, no. no. So, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, as with, you know, I mean, we've the, the massive movement and the massive kind of unveiling of Me Too and, and all of those experiences, I've always been really um, careful not to talk about my own experiences in the work sphere. Um, and then Me Too came through and I thought, oh, this is interesting. It's actually opening up all sorts of possibilities in terms of relating your own personal experiences to the stuff that you're talking about. And, you know, we, I think, are doing a really interesting piece of work at the moment around how including survivor voices in the development of policy and and practice should be done and how you can do that in a way that is ethical, making sure that they're supported, making sure they're protected, but also giving them um, that voice, which is something that hasn't been done a great deal in the past. And it comes with all sorts of tensions and challenges and difficulties, but, you know, so do most of the most difficult things that we do, I think. Um, The most worthwhile things. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we're living in interesting times for for some of this stuff, I think. Both interesting good and interesting bad. Mm. Not not predictable. And um, I was saying to someone the other day, I was interviewing... um, an academic from the US who's worked for 20 years in the sexual harassment workplace mm-hmm. area. So that's been her absolute special. She said, "I what you could have knocked me over when the Me Too movement emerged. Yeah. I had no idea anything like that would start. And I thought, isn't that fascinating? And she was that close to it. Now, maybe you could argue that she was too close, but she just said, people that I know who've been examining this for a long time were completely shocked. So mm. apropos of that, I mean, this year, has not been a good year for women in Australia. We have somewhere like 70 women so far this year who have been killed and most of those I think it's Mm. been by um, intimate partner violence. And I think that, you know, organisations like yours destroying the joint, just keeping that constant count, therefore up in front of everyone's face, you can't just not remember, um, and yet it doesn't seem to be having an impact on the statistics. What do you reckon's going on? This is your, this is your stop yeah. in trade. Look, I think, I think we are living in interesting times. I think there is, you know, with, the, um, with all that comes with the, the global wave of honesty through the Me Too movement, there's also a global backlash as well. I think it's interesting. One of the joys of my job is I get to go out and about and talk to services on the ground a lot, you know, delivering, you know, services to the families that are most vulnerable in New South Wales. And over the last two or three years, they've been saying, look, we think the violence is getting worse and more extreme, but there's no way of actually proving that stuff. I mean, it's all anecdotal. And yet a couple of weeks ago, there was a big UN study released looking at the number of intimate partner homicides, the number of women who are being killed by uh, a partner or former partner internationally and it's increased quite substantially in the last two or three years. So I think from that, that's probably the only bit of evidence that we can actually say. I mean, the numbers go up and down slightly every year. So yes, you're right, we're up to, depending on whose numbers you count, whether you're more risk averse or more or less, somewhere between 65 and, you know, 80 plus women have been murdered this year and the most, most of them have died at the hands of a partner or former partner. That is more than, you know, has been in previous years. And I think um, certainly it's an increase on last year. And I think, you know, there is, there's a correlation between the level of conversation that we're having, the types of violence that we're seeing both on the streets and in the context of the family and the home and the bigger global conversation, you know, and you can't abrogate Donald Trump and other, you know, leaders who are making really violent remarks 
which may be veiled in all sorts of other things, you know, the, the impacts of that at a global level, but also at a community and individual level too. So, yeah, it's a fascinating time to be working in this space, um, but also I think quite chilling as well in, in many ways. Been interesting um, as a journalist. I'm fascinated by the way the language is now being held up to scrutiny, um, and a number of women are doing a fantastic job of rewriting headlines and saying oh, this yes. is not a great family man who had a bad moment and murdered his family. You know, we've got to we've got to actually change the way we talk about this, and um, that's I've, I've found quite interesting to observe. Now, that's being led by women. Mm. It is women in the media who are saying enough, that is appalling, that is not how we write about this. Um, that's something that I'm looking at and I, I guess I'm clinging to, you know, some of the, the more hopeful parts. I mean, are you are you watching that with some interest as well? I honestly think the media has played a massive role in shifting public perceptions around violence against women in the last, let's say, five years since I've been in this role. You know, for me, one of the watershed um, moments in, you know, in New South Wales and I saw a real shift not just in mainstream media, but the way that people were talking about this stuff on the street was the case around Simon Gatani and, and Lisa Harnham. And that just gripped people in a way that domestic violence, you know, an intimate partner violence case hadn't before. You know, here was a woman who was smart, articulate, beautiful. You know, she was high functioning. She had a job. She had a, you know, an international history. She was, her story was compelling there was very little evidence from the outside until people saw some of the footage of the cameras that he'd installed inside their apartment that there was any kind of physical violence going on or even some of the stalking behaviours. And yet once, you know, that trial started to go very public, then we learnt that not only was he tracking all of her emails and, you know, um, listening to her phone calls and monitoring who she was able to spend time with, but also, you know, telling her that she couldn't wear those clothes, she had to dress down, she couldn't work, all of those sorts of really coercive controlling behaviours. And I think that started to shift people's understanding Obviously, um, you know, Lisa's death was horrific and very public. You know, it happened in a very public place in the middle of Sydney. But also, I think that understanding that um, it might not be physical injuries, it might not be black eyes and broken bones and bruises, started to shift people's understanding of that. And I think media was a big part of that, the way that they reported it. Uh, around that story. It was around the same time that we had the Sydney Morning Herald ran a number of different women's faces and said these are the faces of, um, of violence against women. Which and the again, Age did a while ago as well. visibility, yeah. like shine a light, let's just say, actually, this is not a one-off incident. This is not just, um, you know, a man who's gone a bit mad and, um, you know, has shot his wife or, um, you know, let's not make those excuses anymore. Let's actually say this is a problem um, and there's a lot that sits behind this and we need to start interrogating it. And it's, you know, I think it's shifted a long way. What's interesting to me too is there's this real, I mean, I can see it and every time there's some sort of horrible mass murder, particularly in America or even terrorist incident, there's almost always the perpetrator has a history of domestic violence and yet there seems to be this tremendous resistance amongst those in charge who tell us constantly that they're terribly concerned about terrorism and all that kind of thing and they're, you know, willing to get rid of half our liberties to do something about terrorism. But they seem to be refusing to actually look at this connection between violence against the woman, mm. the female partner of the perpetrator. I mean, in at least a few of these horrible events, the first person who is killed is a female relative or partner of the perpetrator. 
what do you think that resistance amongst governments and mm-hmm. police forces is about, that they will not even look at it? I think it's a resistance to look at the structures that support violence against women. Um, and that's that's challenging for all of us. You know, let's not think that any of us constantly use the right language, don't victim blame automatically. You know, it's the way, it's what we have grown up with. It's hierarchy and how it works. It's hierarchy, it's the patriarchy, it's, you know, it's the vibe of the thing. The, the world that we live in, actually, um, it's easier to blame women and to say, well, why doesn't she leave? Or, look, she went back a few times and so she was giving him mixed messages or... Um, you know, particularly some of this really interesting stuff I think that's come out around sexual assaults over the last, you know, couple of years. Me Too has been a part of that and we've seen the way that that's been dealt with in the States. In Australia, it's um, it's a very different kettle of fish, isn't it? You know, allegations defamation. go through a defamation case and the way that, um, again, media often reports on that stuff is, you know, pretty, it's pretty interesting. So terrorism is something we're all meant to be terribly frightened of but actually getting to the bottom of what kind of people perpetrate it is too hard. Mm. Well, it would. I mean, I would say it has to be a risk factor, right? Mm. If you're looking at the tick yeah. boxes of, um, you know, whether somebody might be a terrorist or not, I would say using violence against your partner or your mother or in the family context would be up there. <laughs> There's a lot of um, data about this now. Yeah, mm. yeah absolutely. There is, um, and yet never comes up in the anti-terrorism discussions, particularly oddly enough amongst our more conservative. Pretty, pretty challenging stuff. As you say, it's about power structures. It's about this kind of stuff with, that we tackle even in workplaces and so on. It, it, it is yeah, very much. Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing about violence against women, really, yes, it's um, it, you know, it's a misuse of power and control. It's not just about the broken bones and, and bruises, but it is. Um, it's usually a sense of entitlement. It's that sense of entitlement. I own you. You should be doing what I think you should, whether that's your children or whether that's your partner. Um, and I think that sense of entitlement, it doesn't take much to morph that into a sense of entitlement in other spaces in your life as well. You know, and if you're particularly, if you're leading a life where you're either, you know, really powerful and um, perhaps affluent and working within an environment where people are just reinforcing that a lot of the time, then, um, you know, I mean, you can understand why it would be difficult to challenge some of this stuff, particularly within our parliaments, for example. Uh-huh, as we are discovering <laughs> as we speak. But... I'm interested too. I mean, you you fell into this area, you say, yet you've worked in it for a long time now. What keeps you doing it? You know, it's it's a pretty grim um, thing to work with on a daily basis. Yeah. What what um, makes you hang in there? A sense of hope that it is changing, you know. Um, And also I guess I've had the privilege of um, living and working in a a few different countries and within different cultures as well. And just understanding that this is part of a, a, you know, a global shift it is changing. It's changing very, very slowly. Yes, we have horrific rates of violence against women and children here in Australia, but there are also, you know, comparable things going on across the world and this stuff is changing. It's an exciting time to be working in this space in that, you know, yes, we, we fight a lot with governments. We tell them they're not doing a good enough job at funding. They're pretty awful at prevention, really, like doing the prevention bit because it's not um, a nice, neat, deliverable something that you do within a, a, a government um, funding cycle or parliamentary cycle. But if you're able to kind of kind of take a bit of a step back from it and say, well, actually things have shifted from 20 years ago and within another 20 years' time it will look very, very different again. Um, you know, for me it's been nice to be able to reflect this year 
I think, you know, 12 months on from Me Too and just to say, well, actually, we're part of a much bigger conversation. This is something that has its own energy. It's not going away. We may have, you know, um, political or legal processes here in Australia that mean that we talk about it differently, but it doesn't mean it's going to go away in other places. Well, as we saw on 7.30 recently with Yael Stone, I mean, um, even when the risks are very high, women are insisting on coming forward and telling their stories. It's it's also changing, um, the, the debate's changing, but also one of the areas I'm particularly interested in is financial independence um, and that that the idea there's financial abuse involved as well as physical domestic abuse, I think is something we're starting to slowly see ratchet up, which I think is a very important conversation. A lot to be done in that area, but I think that's so true when we say, oh, why didn't she leave? Mm. Um, and so often, in fact, it is about uh, finance uh, and, and money and, and, and we know how and impoverished women are. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. the other problem, of course, is, and it's kind of interesting, there's a sort of micro-macro parallel in what you're saying that if you're saying things are getting worse at the moment in a way because the shift in women's status and power is 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 happening, then it, that is echoing the fact that when a woman gains the sense of self and the confidence to say, I'm not putting up with this anymore, that's the most dangerous time for her as well because she's thrown off the kind of um, shackles of the that he's trying to hold her down with. So it's interesting that the two things are mirroring each other and that it's quite sobering to think that this fight for equal rights in a way can be can be dangerous. Oh, of course, yeah, because yeah. the stakes are so high. Yeah. to ask you on a slightly more personal level, mm. how do you recharge? I mean, you've got a family mm, yeah. and I guess that's, that's that helps, but what, what gives you energy and keeps you going? Um, reading helps me a lot. I Particularly in the last couple of years, I've really, and, and podcasts as well, actually, I have to say, I have now limited, <laughs> I've now limited the, the podcasts that I listen to. When I first started, probably um, three or four years ago, I would listen to uh, I guess to lots of the, you know, the kind of true crime, those sorts mm. of things, because they're fascinating and they're quite well produced. I've stopped doing all of that now. Um, I now listen to things that make me feel happy and good and feed my brain. Um, I love listening to different women podcasting. Um, I listen to a lot of uh, Radio 4 and on the BBC. Um, Woman's Hour is a particular favourite of mine. You know, I grew up with it as a, as a small child before everybody had television in their house. Everybody had a radio on the windowsill and um, and most people had Women's Hour on. Um, Love the Women's Hour. Yeah, yeah, they, and it's good quality yes. journalism as well. So, um, but yeah, reading. I love, I've just this year converted, and I won't say wholly converted, but it's a good middle of the night um, thing when I get woken up by my little one, is um, reading on a Kindle. And yep. I never thought I'd do it, but... Yep. There's something to be said for kind of lying on your side and waiting for the baby to stop having a little moan. Well, you don't and have to turn a light on. Yeah, that's right. It's less I disturbing. find reading a Kindle or a, a Kindle yep. app on my iPad when I'm travelling because you can carry so many books yep. without handy, handy. Yep. And so fiction, non-fiction, mix? Bit of everything. As I get everything. older, definitely my passion has become um, biographies and autobiographies. But um, I'm, I'm fairly picky. Like I, as an English literature graduate, um, I think they drilled in some standards around the stuff that you read, but um, every now and then I'll just 
buy something for, you know, absolute pleasure. Any favourites, mm. recent favourites? Um, oh, I've just read Michelle Obama's book and I loved it. It was really happy and really positive and and very honest as well. Um, yeah, very much enjoyed that. And I just, um, for some reason, I, I decided I was going to read Julia Gillard's autobiography just before that. And I just, I struggled. And I think what it was, was it's just too current, you know, the yeah. messiness yeah. for her um, and the struggles for her as a strong leader, um, you know, the first fe- female prime minister of Australia. I, I kind of read the two books um, very close to each other and I thought, wow, we've got a long way to go. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, though, because Michelle Obama was helpmate to a powerful man, even though she's an extraordinary yeah. woman. Julia Gillard, when she was deputy prime minister, was incredibly popular. Mm. As soon as she went for the top job herself... Yeah. Um, she was the, you know, wicked witch, the bitch yep. from hell. Um, and that seems to have remained. It's quite mm. weird to me how often we see that when women seek power in their own right, they are automatically seen as bad and wicked mm. and evil. And that's that entitlement thing again yep. coming back into into what we're talking about. I also want to ask you, again on a personal note, because, I mean, you do work in an area which is full of, um, human misery is, mm. you know, that's just where you're, what you're doing day to day. But for you personally, when did you feel, when was a moment when you really felt overwhelmed or there were too many barriers in your way? When, what was the hardest moment? Wow, the hardest moment. It's been a tough couple of months, actually, to be honest. This, like the end of this year has been pretty challenging. I mean, we, we're in a, at a point in the election cycle in New South Wales now where um, I won't say the wheels are falling off, but um, there are some really interesting decisions being made by people in power. And I think when you spend a long time building relationships with people, whether you share their politics or not, you have a sense of hope that maybe some of the more awful decisions won't be made. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've found the last couple of months particularly challenging, both at a, at a, a kind of state level, but also um, I guess just the toll of, um, of busyness that we all experience. Um, and you've got to And that with an, with an almost two-year-old who doesn't always sleep is, you know, it's, Not great. it's a challenge. But um, So it's, it's in a way what you're saying is you have a lot of hope that things are improving, but in a way that's a long-term hope in the short term. Yeah. That's not how things are looking. At the moment, right now, where we are politically, I think, I mean, apart from it being very, very interesting and nobody knowing quite what's around the corner, which is something that, you know, just compels me. Um, Yeah, it's not a great time for us. You know, we are, I have to hope that we are riding some kind of a crest of wave and that at one point when it all crashes and we all get a chance to lie on the sand and gasp a little bit and take our breath, that we will have moved forward. But absolutely, you know, when you wake up or when you get a text message from a journalist to hear that another woman's died, sometimes it just takes your breath away and you just think, wow, what, you know, what will it take? What needs to shift? How many people need to die? And it's, you know, it's beyond women and children and men dying now. That's not enough, obviously, to compel our politicians to take the next steps. And that's, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to have a a sense of hopelessness um, sometimes, but it is my job to give people a sense of hope. You know, the same week that that happened, um, I got to have a really brief conversation with a couple of 
quite young teenage girls who'd lost their mum a couple of years ago. And I just thought, we have to keep fighting for you. You know, I can tell you that I'm doing my hardest within my small sphere of influence. And I can tell you all of these other people are working as hard as they can to make it better. But um, if we don't do a better job at, and, and fix this as much as we can for the next generation, then, you know, it's, I mean, it's a big responsibility, but um, otherwise we're just passing it over to them and saying, will you fix it? What do you tell uh younger women, I guess, because I'm, mm. I'm sure, you know, you're running into them either uh, because yeah. they're part of that that cycle of violence or whatever. Is there something that you do pass on to them or something that is important for them to cling on to in particularly bleak times? I feel, I feel bad because often when I do speak to schools and groups of kids, I say to them, you know, we know now, we know that we know the severity of the problem, we know the volume of the problem, we know more or less what we need to do to fix this. Unfortunately, it's long-term cultural change and it's things like um, shifting community attitudes, it's challenging, um, you know, sexist jokes, it's having those conversations around things like, um, you know, allegations of sexual assault. Often, you know, and, and it's interesting, I think, um, I reflect on the audiences I've gone out and spoken to in the last couple of months and it's often a young woman, usually in her late teens, early 20s, who's saying, but what about the men? Like, mm. there are these allegations and, you know. Can ruin a man's life. <laughs> oh, I'm still waiting yeah. to see that happen, but Yeah, well, we haven't seen that haven't in seen Australia it. yet, no, have we? No, we but haven't. Quite We've the seen, reverse sometimes. In, yeah, there are mm. people we could name if we weren't worried about defamation. <laughs> uh, That's right. <laughs> who, who seem to have popped up who again with no problem. Flourished, mm. indeed. Yeah, yeah. despite mm. but. But it is fantastic um, that we have somebody like you there doing that oh, because look. that's no. But I mean the resilience um, and the optimism. That I'm comes just through. one of many, though. That's the thing. I'm, I'm very, I'm very, very lucky to be. You know, I have amazing colleagues both here in New South Wales and and more broadly in Australia. And you know, it it does when you have one of those days where you're like, this is awful, and we shouldn't still be losing women in these these terrible circumstances. You know, you ring someone who understands, like Rosie, Rosie Batty and I talk on a regular basis just because I go, Rosie, I've, I've got no sense to make of this. What do you think? Um, and others. And I guess you surround yourself with a few kind of close, good people who you know um, won't judge you, that you can say, you know, you can, you can say what you're actually feeling honestly in that moment. Um, and often it is frustration. And then, you know, and, and hopefully do the same for them as well. Well, conversely to what's been some of the worst moments. What's been your best moment? What mm-hmm. What's the moment where you go, ah, oh, yes? Mm. Do you know, I think probably one of the best moments, coming back to young people again, was um, getting a phone call from Minister Pri Goward's office and she said, look, we're going, to, we're going to teach domestic violence in schools. And whilst it hasn't turned out to be anywhere near what it should have been, i.e. the resourcing and training for teachers and the support for them to be able to, um, you know, develop proper whole-of-school approaches to this. For me, it was really significant because it was a young teenage girl who'd gathered gathered 100,000 signatures on a change.org petition and she'd made change. She'd made two ministers make significant policy change and that for me was, you know, the crux of real democracy and real um, people power in action. She'd lost her mother in absolutely tragic circumstances and she said, well, why wasn't I taught about this in school? And I should be. You know, and she's gone on to be an incredible activist in her own right. But I think seeing, you know, a, a lot of my job is incremental change. So you have to be quite patient and you also have to be able to take a deep breath when 
I call it the stupidness that happens and say, well, look, this is just part of where we're shifting and it is moving forward. What do you think, just thinking about the shifting forward, because sometimes that shift can feel quite horrible because something that was hidden suddenly becomes mm-hmm. uh, out in the open and people are shocked and horrified to know that goes on. And the thing that's sticking in my head is elder abuse, the mm. fact that we have not spoken much about elder abuse until really recently, but it seems almost to be a continuation of this entitlement idea. It involves financial abuse quite a lot, but it also can involve um, physical abuse. Um, and that's something that, I mean, it wasn't even a phrase. Nobody even spoke mm. about it until really incredibly recently. That's right. And I think a couple of months ago in a day-long forum talking to some of the activists in the elders' rights movement or movements because there's, you know, a lot there's of people have been working in now. that space yeah. for a long time and just their voices haven't been heard. And they said, oh, we can, you know, there's so much we can learn from from the domestic violence space from what's, I guess, the level of awareness and, and media um, attention in the domestic violence space in the last five to ten years. Um, but it is all connected. That's the thing. I mean, part of the solution, part of the um, focus really, I think we get quite daunted by what needs to happen in order to you know, fix so the big. problem. It's actually just about being respectful and teaching people to be nicer to each other. Um, you know, and that happens within the family context, within the community context, whether you're in school, whether you're in the workplace. Um, it doesn't mean that we all need to be constantly, you know, checking our behaviour and our language. It just means actually if we learn to be a bit more respectful of um, other people's boundaries, even embrace difference, you know, imagine that. Imagine if we could actually, rather than just tolerating difference, really embrace it and say this makes us richer as a society. It's interesting you say that because I've been, you know, there's lots of Twitter conversations whenever, um, you know, the current stuff about Yale Stone and Jeffrey Rush and that kind of thing and people say, oh, you know, you can't even work with women anymore, you can't flirt with them, you can't do these things. And I would say, no, all you have to do is treat everyone with respect and courtesy and you'll be mm. fine. Yeah. Like nothing bad will happen to you. In fact, your whole life will be enhanced and that's all it takes. Mm. But it, what I, I don't, to this day, I don't understand the block that some people have about treating certain groups with respect and courtesy. I wish I understood what it was. It's, it's, it's associated, I think, with this fear that if, God forbid, gender equality actually happens, if we reach this nirvana state of gender equality that suddenly um, men are going to be at a disadvantage. It just fascinates me. You know, I mean, gender equality works for everyone. One of the things I try and talk with um, young men and women about when I go into schools or have uh, conversations with, you know, groups of young people is just starting to unpack some of that stuff around toxic masculinity and the fact that it doesn't actually work for for boys or men either. Um, You know, some of my best male friends can speak much more articulately on this stuff than I can. And it obviously is listened to much more when it comes out of their mouths than when I talk about it. But I think, you know, it is hard to be a man, primarily because we haven't done a good job at teaching people how to be anything. Um, And respect is a part of that, but also um, gender stereotypes are a part of that as well. And um, the more that we can start to unpack that stuff and do it from the youngest, you know, age-appropriate language, but some of that stuff that we were talking about before we we came on air, you know, the stuff that we do to kids from the earliest ages in terms of shaping who they are as a gender doesn't help anybody. And so my poor daughter Eve gets, you know, dragged out in all sorts of clothes that 
she often gets mistaken as a boy. And for the first kind of six months, I'd correct people and now don't bother, you know. It's interesting when we're told that those kinds of things are trivial. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like language. Oh, it doesn't matter. Why are you getting upset about that? Why do you care what your name is? Well, um, why do you, you care? Why do, exactly. <laughs> and yet we get incredibly exercised about it as a society. Yeah. It's it's almost a defining organising mm. principles and it, it makes people very upset and it's what and very po- angry. It's what that phrase political correctness is always wheeled out to explain. Gone mad, political correctness gone mad when you put a boy in pink. Yeah. Really? Why? <laughs> Why is that so terrible? I, I My daughter told me a lovely anecdote about taking my grandson to the playground and he ran up and, you know, hugged a little girl who was playing there and she pulled him off and said, no, you must get consent. It's very <laughs> important. And the other mother howled with laughter and Polly said, Actually, no, it really is important yeah. to teach him that he yeah. isn't allowed to go and touch other people yeah. without asking them first. Yeah. And I thought that's a much better response than, oh, well, boys will be boys mm. because that response, yeah, okay, maybe it's trivial when they're two and a half, but that response throughout their life ends up with that entitlement. Yeah. I'm entitled. I want to touch you. I can touch you. Mm. Having a, a baby and now a toddler who doesn't always want to have a cuddle or oh. touch you or, you know, she likes waving, she likes blowing kisses and she does that to almost everybody. Um, but, you know, all of the all of the social um, expectations that actually, you know, young kids will kiss adults whether they know them or not. No. It's great. I love that we're challenging that stuff now as a society. Yeah. I, I agree. I think we tend to look on these things with some sort of moral panic, but actually there's a lot yep. of good stuff that's happened. And if you call it political correctness, that's fine. <laughs> um, Rue, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you um, and to hear about your incredible work. Yeah. And congratulations and thank you so much for doing it. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. Producer Lip Proud, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.